The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study this morning of 1 John. And so far we have seen that Lazarus has exhorted the readers to walk in the light. He has exhorted them to love the brethren. And he's also said they need to be keeping the commandments. So if you're wondering what it means to walk in the light, he's really defined it up to this point as keeping his commandments and loving the brethren. And walking in the light is important because this is how we as believers have fellowship with God. In 1 John 1.7 he says, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Yeshua's Son cleanses us from all sin. So, as we keep His commandments, we walk in the light. And as we love our brothers and sisters, we're walking in the light. Now, in our text for this morning, He further defines walking in the light as not loving the world. So, love the Father, love the brethren, but don't love the world. It's kind of a summary of what John is telling us here. Now, this section that we're looking at today, it runs from... 2.12 to 2.17. We've already looked at 2.12 to 14. The second part is 15 to 17. And here Lazarus continues the direct form of the address to his readers. But rather than complimenting them, he now exhorts them. He has told us that if we walk in darkness and claim to be in fellowship with God, we're lying. 1 John 1.6. Well, now John points out a specific area of sin that especially threatens our fellowship with God And that is what we might call worldliness or loving the world. He says in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now the text begins with a command. It's the only command in the text, and therefore it's probably the main point. That's what he's trying to stress here. Do not love the world. Now, the Greek negative prohibition here is may with the present active imperative agapao. And it means, listen, either stop doing something or don't have the habit of doing it. And I think John here is telling uh, these readers, you need to stop this act that's already in process. Now, hang on to that because we're going to bring that back up a little bit. We're going to talk about that. So stop. Loving the world would be a translation here. Now, were John's readers loving the world? Well, some of them most likely were. I think it's a problem believers have. Don't you? All right. But maybe he is calling out the opponents here, the pre-Gnostics that we've talked about. See, that they claim to have a secret knowledge which virtually had no impact on how they lived their lives. It was an amoral kind of belief system, so they continued to love the world. Those people then demonstrated the love of the Father was not in them. Now, last week in our study of this text, I just focused on the word love here, which is agapao. Love in the New Testament is most often translated as agape or agapao. And since many of those scriptures are telling us about a godly type of love, it's not surprising that many just assume that those Greek words refer to some kind of special love, a spiritual godly love. But as we saw last week, that assumption is not accurate. Now, 
An English dictionary on dictionary.com defines agape this way. The love of God or Christ for humankind. So they're taking agape as a special word that just refers to God's love. And secondly, they say the love of Christians for other persons corresponding to the love of God for humankind. So, you know, they're taking that word agape and following in the calf bath and saying, you know, this is what it means. It's a special kind of love. And it's no wonder people think that agape is some special kind of love. And we saw last week that's not true. Well, Thayer's Greek-English Dictionary on agape says this. He says, of persons to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, to love dearly. Nothing about a special kind of love for God or anything like that. Thayer says this, of things. Now, you never hear anybody saying agape about things. You know, we don't agape things. They, that's what they would think. But obviously, this is what this text is telling us. Don't agape the world. Of things, he says, to be well pleased, to be contended at, contended at or with things. So as you can see, it's pretty much like our English word. You know, the Greek word agape. The love involved in this exhortation carries a different meaning from the love of fellow believers that we saw in 2.10. In 2.10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So that's a good thing. But in 15, he says, don't love the world. So there, in, in 2.10, love is focused on the well-being of another, but in 2.15, it's focused on the pleasures and gratifications that one hopes to receive. Now, what we can see from this text is that the opposite of loving the world is not only loving the Father in verse 15. If anyone loves the Father, love of the world's not in him. So if you love the world, you don't love the Father. If you love the Father, you don't love the world. But in verse 17, he says, whosoever does the will of God. So doing the will of God is loving the Father. Not loving the Father is not doing the will of God. Yeshua said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. So what if you don't love him? What if you don't keep his commandments? What are you doing? You're not loving Him. Okay? So somebody can say, I love God, meaning I feel just warm and tingly about God. But if you don't keep His commandments, I don't care what you say, because I'm going to take the Bible over your word, you don't love God. Okay? Yeshua also said, 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God. What is? That we keep His commandments. So that's, that's important, believers. That's how we identify someone who is loving God. They're living in obedience. Now, so loving the Father in verse 15 and doing the will of God in verse 17, they're not separate things. If you love God, you'll love what He loves. You'll love what He wills. You know, it's kind of foolish to say, I love God, but I don't love what God loves. Do you agree with that? That sounds kind of... I love God, but I just don't care about the things He loves. Well, here's the thing then. Okay, most of you nodded your head like you agree. So, why are we told in our text not to love what God is said to love? John 3.16, For God so loved the world. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world. What's that about? God loves it, but don't you. Is that one of those do as I say, not as I do things? <laughs> no. What's the deal here? So how do we deal with this? Okay, the word for world here, cosmos. 
Both words for world here are cosmos. But obviously, there's different meanings to the word cosmos. All right, we have to understand that. Cosmos is used 186 times in the New Testament. John uses it 105 of those times. That's, I mean, you could see he's an important word to him. 78 times he used it in the Gospel, 24 times in the Epistle, 3 times in Revelation. Now, A.W. Pink sees at least seven different usages of the word cosmos in the Scripture. All right? Colin Krauss writes this. The word cosmos occurs 23 times in 1 John, and its meaning varies according to the context. In one place it means the natural world. He quotes here 317, or references it. In several places it bears a locative sense, the place into which various ones go or in which they live. In other places it denotes worldly values or attitudes that are opposed to God. And in yet other places it denotes the unbeliever's world, the unbelieving world. People who are opposed to God and believers, and who are under the power of the evil one. So, Krauss sees four different uses of cosmos in 1 John. And there's probably even more. Like I said, Pink comes up, well, well he's not talking just about John, though he's using it in the New Testament, he sees seven. In our text, the word cosmos represents the system of values priorities and beliefs that unbelievers hold to that exclude God. Now, in John's day, the world was under the dominion of Satan. Scripture makes that really clear. All right, 1 John 5.19 We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole cosmos is under the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 And you were dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked, following the course of this world, that's cosmos, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we know that Satan and all the other fallen gods that he is dealing with here were defeated by Christ in AD 70. But in our day, there's still a man-made worldly system that opposes Yahweh and opposes His values. That's just man and his nature. God says this, and you want to go the opposite way. John 3.16 here, world, I believe, is used in a racial sense. Say, God's a racist? No, that's not what I mean, okay? It's in a racial sense that God loves the world. In other words, all peoples. Jews and Gentiles. Remember what's happening in John 3. Who's he talking to? Nicodemus, leader of the Jews. And he says, God loves the world because the Jews thought God just loved them. He said, no, he loves the world. All right. In our text, it's not used in that sense. It's used in the sense of the world system. The world system is a system which is man-built that does everything in its power to make itself happy, to meet its own needs, to fulfill all its wants apart from God. And what makes the world worldly is the rejection of God and His claims and just kind of going their own way. Their own value system. God has a value system. When you reject that, you're going to making up your own system because the world has a system that basically values fluctuate depending on how you want them to be. Now there's little doubt that in the present context, cosmos means attitudes or values that are opposed to God. That's what we're not to love. Notice what James says. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world system makes himself an enemy of God. And see there it says world system, and that's what the same way James is using this word, the same way that John does of that system, anti-God system that the world has out there. You know, and the only way you can really fight this system and the love that it draws people to is to grow in your relationship with the Father. To grow in your fellowship with the Father. Because the closer you are to God, the less the world has that pull on you. So you need to grow. You need to spend time in the Word of God, doing what the Word of God says so we can grow in that way. Now, he says, do not love the world. When we talked about not loving the world, many people would say this prohibition here is basically against worldliness. Alright? Fine, I agree with that. I think that's right. The problem is, what is worldliness? Oh, wow, you ask ten Christians, you get ten different answers, right? You ever notice that among Christians? Depends on what group you came from. You go to another group, and they're like, that's worldly. What? Putting salt on my food? You know, I mean, it can get that extreme, really. And Christian attempts, because I think people read the Bible, they see this, okay, yeah, worldliness is wrong. So they come up with attempts to counter worldliness, and they often swing so far in the other direction that they're in trouble there. In order to avoid worldliness, during years past, uh, around the Babylonian captivity, they developed Phariseeism. Now, we think of Pharisees, we're like, oh, those people are bad. They started out good. I mean, they really wanted to honor God and follow the rules of the Bible and do what was right. They were religious separatists, and they wanted to be holy. They're very strict in their observance of the law, at least in their own minds. And after going through the Tanakh, they came up with 613 commandments, which they codified and elaborated on. And then they imposed their own ideas on top of that. Okay, they're fine with those 613. They're in the Bible. But then they kind of added the oral traditions on that to the Scriptures, and they added their traditions onto that. And then, as they were doing them, they started looking at everybody else and said, they're not doing what we're doing. We're, we're better than everybody else. And that's, what, you know, that's how we think of Pharisees. Someone who thinks they're holier than everybody else. They're better than everybody else. Now, the Phariseeism of the Lord's Day, you know, they were, like I said, it started out good. By the time of the Lord's Day, they were pretty well corrupt. But they were trying to adhere to religious rituals. And it turned to legalism. And that's fine. We've talked about this before. Listen, if you think something's wrong, that's fine. It's wrong for you. You don't have to impose that on anybody else. It's not your job. Well, I don't do this, so you shouldn't do it. I mean, aren't we that way, though? Because if we don't do it, it must, not be, it must be wrong, or we wouldn't do it. In order to avoid worldliness, some have become ascetics. The ascetics were people who denied fleshly appetites. Sex, food, drink, rest. Now, obviously, they didn't totally avoid some of these things. Food and drink would be kind of hard to do. But they wanted to avoid any form of physical pleasure. That was worldly, to have pleasure. An extreme example of this, any of you even heard of Simon the Stylite? He lived from 390 to 459. He lived in extreme austerity. He lived on a platform on top of a 60-foot pillar for 36 years. 36 years. He, he wasn't worldly. I'm separate. Six stories up. I'm away from the world. 
you know, I'm on this little platform. This is good. Thousands of people would flock to hear him preach because he was such a spiritual man because he was, you know, separated from the world. Then there was monasticism, which, well, you've heard of monks and hermits. They just withdraw from the world. You know, you can be more spiritual if you're not around people. I think that's true. I can be very spiritual if there's no one around to bother me. If there's no one around I have to love. It's easy to be spiritual, right? But they just thought if you're really committed Christian, you want to love God instead of the world, so you just get away from everybody else. Get away from society. Be a monk. Go to some desolate monastery. You know, and this just goes on and on. You know, today, many religious groups and denominations forbid or explicitly deny certain things, certain behaviors. And depending on the group, depending on the country, depending on where, you get all kinds of different things. In some circles, smoking is forbidden. And some groups look down on drinking. You know, any kind of alcohol. Dancing is really bad, okay? Rock music. You know, you define, I guess, what that is. Attending movies. You know, and I've grown up with some of these, you know, not grown up because I didn't become a Christian until I was 20, but uh, some of these things I've seen in the church. You know, I was in a Baptist church. You're not allowed to go to movies. I, had to sign, I worked for the church. I had to sign something. I wouldn't go to movies. Well, then, I'm in the preacher's car one day, and there's four videos on the floor. And I'm like, wait a second. You can't go to the movies, you can watch videos. Well, if you go to the movie theater, they don't know which movie you're going to. And I'm like, in the video store, there's like 10,000 videos. This is back when, when they had video stores, you remember that? <laughs> you know, and it's just so contradictory, you know? I remember every staff meeting that we had, one of the big issues was you got to talk to so-and-so, their hair is touching their ears. This was bad. This is, uh, you know, you're getting worldly if your hair starts touching your ears. Others wore beards. Oh, he can't do that. He's got a beard. Didn't Yeshua have a beard? I'm pretty sure. Okay, but, you know, it just gets, it gets crazy, people. And, and like, it's, it fluctuates from culture to culture. You know, I was talking to missionaries, and they said, you know, we have a liquor cabinet there at the orphanage, you know, where they were, not for the orphans, of course, but for the... <laughs> For the workers, you know, and they said, it's, it's fine, it's not a problem. Unless the Americans come over, then we got to hide it. Because the Americans have a problem with it. But they said, nobody else does, because in other cultures, people drink, and it does not a big deal, you know. But Americans, they have that problem. So, you know, there's just so many things. And, I, you know, girl, playing cards. Some people think that's, you know, that's a sin if you play cards. A Christian from Eastern Europe, European countries said that in his circles, attending a public Sporting event was frowned on. Some stricter groups have avoided the use of modern machinery and automobiles. You know, that's worldly. Buttons are worldly. You know, zippers are worldly. I mean, just all kinds of crazy things. And you know, many colleges, Christian colleges, require you to sign some pledge, you know, that you're not going to do things worldly while you're there. You know? MacArthur tells the story that I think it's hilarious. He was at, uh, I can't remember what school it was. It might have been Bob Jones. And uh, he was doing laundry, and he's coming back from doing laundry, and somebody got him in trouble. They said, we saw, someone saw you with a blonde girl in your car with a blue dress on. He said, well, that was my blue laundry bag with the yellow towel sticking out the top of it, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, that's how ridiculous it is. You know, the people are, they're, they're watching everybody else, and they're making sure, listen, you're supposed to not be worldly yourself. You're not the policeman of the world or the church that you run around telling everybody else what they can and can't do. 
you know? What makes people worldly is not smoking or dancing or playing cards. It's the rejection of the claims of God, the values of God that make us worldly. This fallen world system attempts to meet all mankind's needs apart from God. That's what worldliness is. It structures life in such a way that humans appear to be independent. One of the first, I think, examples of this idea of worldliness we see in the Bible is in Genesis 11. Human society unites in rebellion against God and they build a Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, there's this anti-God leader named Nimrod. Okay? And he organized this rebellion against God. God had told them to expand, go disperse, go through the whole earth. They said, let's build this. Go right here. It's a good place. Let's build this tower. You know, and just maybe in building this tower, they had the idea, this is going to be so high that if God tries to flood us again, we'll be safe. Well, that didn't work out too well for him, you know. But anyway, that's it's worldliness. It, it's, you know, I don't see this talking per se. You know, he says here, don't love the world or the things of the world. Now, I don't think per se he's talking about, you know, don't like your car, don't like your phone, or, you know, some people go that far, you know. Th- that's not what he's talking about. The difference between the world and the things of the world is the difference between uh, the world thought of as a whole and the constituent elements of the world that make that up. And we're going to talk about that because that's what verse 16 lays out. All right, these are the things of the world. We'll see that when we get to verse 16 in a minute. But he says here, if anyone loves the Father, the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if here's a third class conditional sentence in the Greek, it means potential action. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's kind of how we use if, right? If. I might, I might not, all right? So, if you love the world, now, he's writing to Christians, and he says, if anyone loves the world, so does that tell you that maybe Christians can love the world? It's making it a positive, you might, all right? He's saying the same thing that Yeshua said in Luke 16, 1-3, or 16, 13, yeah, sorry. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you can't love God and the world. It's one or the other. They're mutually exclusive. If you love Yahweh, you're going to hate evil. Now, worldliness, at its core, is a matter of the heart. If your heart is captured by the world, you're going to love the things of the world. If your heart is captured by the love of God, you're going to be drawn to Him and the things of God and not those other things. But he says, if you do love the world, he says, the love of the Father is not in Him. Now this could mean God's love for us, which is a subjective genitive, but to be parallel to the first half of the verse, it probably refers primarily to our love for God, which is an objective genitive. So John means that the one who loves the world doesn't love God. Their, their affection is toward the world, it's not towards God. And the only way we can overcome the strong desire of the flesh and the world is by being consumed with God and the things of God. Now, commenting on if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, John MacArthur writes this. So that constitutes a clear delineation. Somebody who loves the world is not a believer. Comfortable with that? 
I mean, he's making that clear. You know, if, if you love the world, you don't love the Father. So he says, if you don't love, if you love the world, you know. Okay, a page later, he says this. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone does, they're not Christians. He goes on to say this. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is to say, he has no relationship. Sorry, he has no relationship with God. Nada. How many Christians are out there, actually? He's thinning out the herd for sure. <laughs> he says, loving the world, as I told you last week, is impossible for true believers. You can't. Believers, you can't even do it. Don't worry about it. Because the world is an anti-God system, and you can't love God and love the world. I agree, you can't love God and can't love the world. One more, okay? He says, now the command then, very clearly, chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world, because if, if you do, you're not a believer. True Christians don't love the world. Okay, let me talk about a couple problems with what he's saying here. One of the problems is, what MacArthur says here, is the Greek negative prohibition may, occurring with the present active imperative verb agapao, means stop doing something. He's writing to Christians. Stop doing this, and John says, you can't do it. Well, he's wasting his time even writing this. He doesn't need to write it because Christians can't do it. Right? He's, he's inferring that Christians are doing this. John MacArthur says they can't. All right? Yeah, who's right? I'm going to go with John. Not John MacArthur. I'm going to go with Lazarus. John Eliezer. All right? Here's another thing. John also, John Eliezer, uses a third-class condition if. Maybe you will. Well, why would he use a third-class condition? Maybe they'll love the world when they can't love the world. None of that makes sense. Okay, just by the language itself. So let me ask you this. Can a believer not love God? Do all believers love God? I know, you're scared. Uh. <laughs> all right. Let me make it clear for you. Let's look at what Yeshua said. You trust Him, right? Better than probably John MacArthur. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I'll come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So Yeshua is saying here, if you love me, you would have rejoiced. And if you love me is a second-class condition which means it's contrary to fact. In other words, he's saying, if you love me, which you don't, you would have rejoiced, which you're not. So he's saying, you guys don't love me, because if you did, this is what you'd be doing. Now, Robertson's word pictures states this. If you love me is a second-class condition with the imperfect active of agapao, referring to present time implying that the disciples are not loving Jesus as they should. So, did the disciples love Him? Yeshua said they didn't. Yeshua said they didn't. He said if they loved Him, they'd be rejoicing. They weren't rejoicing, so they didn't love Him. Were they believers? Yes. But they were not loving Him because they were self-consumed with what they wanted. They weren't keeping the commandments. They weren't desiring the will of God. They were desiring their own will. 
So Yeshua said, you're not loving me. If you really love me, you'd be rejoicing because I'm going to the Father. So this nonsense about all believers love God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do all believers keep the commandments? Do all believers love God? Do this. No. Okay. Shake your head. This way. This way. No, they don't. They don't all love God. And listen, this, MacArthur has this idea that if you don't love God, you're not a Christian. Well, that's not true. You can become a Christian by believing in the Lord Yeshua. All right? It's faith. Faith makes you a Christian. As a Christian, you're supposed to love God. All Christians don't love God. Most Christians love themselves more than they love God. And that's a problem. That's why the church is so worldly today. Because they're consumed with themselves. Now, I'm not saying, please get this, everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. No, not at all. But I'm saying if they believe the gospel based on the Word of God, they're a Christian. If they understand and believe the gospel, that makes them a Christian. So all Christians don't love God. But they should. They're called to. All right? Let's move on to verse 16. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. Now, as I said earlier, verse 16 is explanatory of verse 15. For here is the Greek hadi. It's easy to remember that Greek word because I just think of my wife. Hadi. Okay, there you go. Gives a a reason why the love of the Father is not in the person who loves the world. All right, this is why. All right, he's going to explain it. The desires of the flesh. Desires here. Some translations have lust. That's a good translation. Epithumia is the word. It refers to strong desires or impulse. It's found 38 times in the New Testament. In only three of those places does it have a positive connotation. So lust, desires are usually, you know, a morally negative connotation. That's how it's used in this context. Now, the desires of the flesh. Flesh here is from the Greek word sarx. The term sarx is used many ways in Scripture, all right, like cosmos is. The important thing for us is to determine what's it mean in this passage. How's he using it? Some people say flesh is always bad. You know, it's the evil. It's man's evil nature. It's the sinful nature. We've got to be careful that we don't interpret John's use of sarks by Paul's use of sarks. Okay? Because John tells us this. The Word, who's the Word? Christ, Yeshua. He became flesh. Is that bad? No. Humanity. It's just speaking of humanity there. All right? Here, flesh is sarks, just something, you know, but most people see it in a moral context, like in Romans 8, Galatians 5, but sometimes it's used just in a physical sense, and that's how it's used here. Christ became physical. He became a man. Romans 1.3 says that Yeshua was the son of David according to the flesh. In other words, humanly speaking, came through that fleshly line, all right? So we have to interpret it, how it's used in the context. Desires of the flesh here. I think he's referring to purely human desires apart from God or God's will. It's just what you want. Without taking into consideration, what does God say you should do? Okay? What do you want? What does God say? The genitive could be attributive, fleshly desires, but it's more likely subjective where it is the flesh which is doing the desiring. Desires of the flesh. It's a desire to do something apart from the will of God. It includes all corrupt bodily desires, every sinful activity that appeals to the hearts of man. All right? God says, 
Life is sacred. Right? God says we're created in the image of God. The world says, if it's inconvenient, terminate that life. Okay? That's sin. That's a desire of the flesh. I'm being inconvenienced by this baby living in me. Have you seen the, the thing, the big thing on Facebook right now, the pictures that make you look older, or the apps that make I sure don't need that, okay? <laughs> I'm already there. <laughs> the one for me would show a tombstone. Here's me in 40 years, okay? But I saw one today that, I think it was today, that really got my attention. It was a, it was a shot of an embryonic you know, child in a womb, okay? You know, the ultrasound. And the next picture was like a five-year-old girl. And it said, hey, people wake up. This is, this is what happens. See, these, these little things in the womb, they become children because they're human beings from conception on. But the world doesn't care about that because the world's worldly. and It doesn't matter what God says about life. We don't want it to be life because it's inconvenient for us. That's worldly, people. It's those desires, those plans that are shaped entirely by our impulses, what we want. Perhaps the most common manifestation of the lust of the flesh is, in modern Western civilization, illicit sex, hedonism, the idea of idolizing pleasure. Whatever gives us pleasure, that's what we idolize. We don't care what God says. You know, the Epicureans, have you heard of them? They became known for unbridled desires, licentious behavior, especially gluttony. You know that the Romans would eat so much and then they would go out and throw up and then come back and they could eat some more. they purge, you know, and come back. Ah, I want some more. This doesn't sound too appetizing, you know, but that's gluttony, okay? <clears throat> Not only desires of the flesh, but he said the desires of the eyes. He's talking here about what's appealing to our senses, but is not proper to go after, all right? It falls under this category. It's those sinful cravings which are activated by what people see and they lead to covetousness. Covetousness is one part of what makes up the desires of the eyes, I think, in this context. And the problem with the eyes here is that they tend to see only what's fleshly, only what's natural, without seeing the spiritual significance. We look at, you know, we're, we're looking in a physical realm, so we only see what's physical, and that attracts us. It's captivated by the outward show of things. We're not getting to the real point. You know, we see an example of this, I think, in John chapter 9, the healing of the blind man. You know, the Lord heals him, but the real significance of the sign miracle is not that Yeshua gave this man physical sight, but He gave him spiritual sight. And that was the important thing. The physical sight was just pointing. This is, he's, he's opened his eyes. He sees. You know, today with the pervasive influence of the modern media, our eyes are just bombarded, you know, with sinful things. I mean, turn on the TV, go through the magazine, you know, you need this bigger house, you need this better car. And tell us, houses and cars are not, you know, a place to live and a place to get you to point A to B. They're status symbols. Okay? That's what they are today. They're status symbols. So you want to get the biggest one you can get, you know, to show, how, to show your status. And the car, the more money you spend, it'll still get you to point A and point B, but, you know, you spend a lot of money on it. Okay? And it's status symbols because we're always trying to impress somebody. Luxury items. I mean, everywhere you look, you know, it's just... I, I was flipping through the channels the other day and came across a show, Luxury Pools. 
I like my pool. And then I got done watching the show. I'm like, dang, I got to tear that thing down. Give me one of these pools. I mean, they had waterfalls and underwater caves and, you know, all these things and fire coming out of the water in places and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's what everybody needs, right? You know, it's just one-upmanship. You just never satisfy. You know that Americans spend billions of dollars on casino gambling and lottery tickets. Why? They see things they want. If I get, just get this, I'll be happy if I get this. If you like to buy lottery tickets, if you like to go gamble, I got a verse for you. Okay? Proverbs 30, verse 8. Anybody know what it says? Proverbs 30, verse 8. It says this Give me neither poverty nor riches. Just give me what I need, Lord. Okay? So as you're buying your lottery tickets, say, Give me neither poverty nor riches. No, I can't say that. That'd be dumb, you know? I'm trying to get rich. That's what I'm buying this ticket for. Ah, it's so frustrating for me to go in 7-Eleven and wait in line. All these people throwing away their money, buying lies, scratching them away. You know, put it in your pocket. You'll be way further ahead, all right? The desires of the eyes. I assume that's going to cover things like pornography, okay? And the idea, you know, you're not going to engage in adultery, but I'm just going to look. I believe that Internet pornography is one of the most dangerous damaging things for Christian men today. And the thing is, you know, when I was a kid, you used to have to go to the store and buy a magazine. Okay? You don't have to go to the store anymore. Everybody's got pornography. You know, you figure if, if you have an internet connection, you can see all the corrupt stuff that you want to see. You know? Stuff that God never intended anybody to be looking in other people's bedrooms. You know, it's just not how it's supposed to be. And it just promotes lust. It, you know, destroys contentment. Achan saw, remember, what did he do? It says he coveted and he took. And God said, don't take anything. Go in there, don't take a thing. Well, he did. And so what happened to Achan? His family, him, all his family were stoned to death. Because when they went to fight that little city, Ai, they got whipped. And Joshua goes, what's going on here? And God says, get off your knees. He's down praying. God said, get up. There's sin in the camp. Achan says, I saw, I coveted, and I took. How about Samson? He saw some girl, he was like, boy, she's, get her for me, mom and dad. Well, you big sissy, go get her yourself, you know. But he had his mom and dad do it. And what happened? His lust of his eyes cost him his eyes, okay? I mean, every time I read the story, you know, she's trying to, tell me your secret power. I'm like, stupid, wake up. He tells her finally, if you shave my head, and so they pluck his eyes out. How about David? David's on his balcony. Should have been at war. Sees Bathsheba. He paid the rest of his life for that sin. The, the lust of the eyes. You know, you see something, you think, hey, that's better than what I got. I got to get that thing. All right? And then he says the pride of life. Now, this refers to human pride apart from God. It's the idea of trusting your own resources. In the Jerome Bible Commentary, Volume 2, Raymond Brown, who was a renowned Catholic Johannian scholar, says of this phrase, however, aladzonea, which is the word here for pride, found also in James 4.16, has a more active meaning than mere pride. It denotes arrogance, boastfulness, the conviction of self-sufficiency. Now what's interesting here, the word for life here is bios, all right, the pride of life. Bios has a wide range of meanings. Uh, it can be translated life like it is here, but I don't think that's a good translation. 
It can be translated livelihood, living, but it can be translated property or possessions. And I think that's how it should be translated here. The pride of possessions. In chapter in John 3.17, he says this, if anyone see the world's bios, same exact word, goods, and sees his, so it's talking about the things you own, your possessions. All right? It's, it has this sense of property or possessions. And this is the predominant use of the word in the New Testament. All right? So the pride is of what you own. See, while lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes refers to the desires you have, you want that you don't have, pride refers to the sinful pride over what you do have. So there's things I want, and I'm not happy because I don't have them. But what I do have, I'm going to try to make anybody miserable that they don't have what I have. That's the idea here. You can brag in your accomplishments. You can glory in that. Worldliness is primarily an attitude that is motivated by wrong desires and wrongful promotion of self. Perhaps the most common manifestation of the pride of life is trying to control people, circumstances, and even God with your egotism. And just being, you know, I, I, I want everybody to see what I've done, see my accomplishments, and realize that they're not as good as me because they don't have what I have. It's easy to think like Nebuchadnezzar did. Remember him? I mean, this guy's a king. He's, he's the powerful nation of Babylon, and he's the king. And he says at the end, of, it says at the end of 12 months, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He's just out there strolling on his palace. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? I mean, he's just excited about it. Look how wonderful I am. Look what I've done. And it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar next? He's out on the front lawn of the palace eating grass, acting like an animal. And God says, God judged him. And after seven years, he lifted up his eyes and recognized that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And he's like, okay, God, I get it. It's not about me. It's about you. But that's, I mean, we're not kings of nations like this, empires, but we struggle with the same thing. Listen, the material security of one's life and possession produces a boastful overconfidence. The person who thinks he has enough wealth, enough profit to protect himself and ensure security, they don't have any need for God. I got it all straightened out. And that's why I said, Americans, it's hard for us to pray, give us this day my daily bread. I got bread in the refrigerator. I got MasterCard, Visa, they got Food Lion and Starbucks. I got everything I need. Why would I ask God to provide my needs? And so this builds a sense of security like I'm all right. And it's so foolish, you know? Say, I got this great, you know, retirement plan in this company, and then what happens? You find out the corrupt people at the top have spent all the money, and boom, you're done, and you're out of job, and you're out of retirement. And how many times have you seen that? Some Ponzi scheme going on. Guess what? All your investments, they're gone. How many have been upset whether in business or discouraged or defeated because you lost something that you worked for and you thought, this is mine, I got it, and we're secure now, and things are going to be all right? Well, compare that with a group of Christians in Hebrews 
He said, you had compassion on those who are in prison. Watch this. This must be a misprint. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What? See, there's other translations that says, and you grabbed your AR-15s and you took them down because they tried to steal your stuff. Now, that's a liberal translation. But this is, I mean, listen, people, this is what it says. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They've taken their stuff and they're joyful about it. Why? Since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. That's just stuff. It's temporary. This doesn't sound like many Christians today. Well, many American Christians today. Okay? Let me clarify that. So the pride spoken of is self-reliance. It's self-sufficiency. Either people trust themselves and they derive their values, their assurance of life from themselves or from God. And those who love the world see their security in the world. They depend on their possession. They don't need to depend on God. They don't need to trust Him day to day. Many have pointed out how the three aspects here of temptation listed here parallel the way that Satan tempted Eve. You know, she saw the forbidden fruit. It was good for food, Genesis 3.6, which was an appeal to the lust of the flesh. Wait a minute, i got all these trees in the garden. I can eat anything. But you know what tree looks the best? The one God said, don't eat. <laughs> don't eat that one. She, it says she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Okay? This appealed to the lust of her eyes. And she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's again the pride of life. She's like, wow, I can be better. I can be like God if I do this. <coughs> Excuse me. The same pattern occurs in Satan's temptation of Yeshua. Luke chapter 4. Satan urges you to turn the stones into bread. It's the lust of the flesh. You've got to be hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Take these stones and just turn them into bread and eat all you want. He shows them the kingdoms of the world, offers them to him. Lust of the eyes. Look at all these kingdoms. They can all be yours if you just bow down and worship me. Then he encourages him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, which could have been a source of pride in this miraculous accomplishment. Just go ahead. God will take care of you. He says all these things, he says, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Uh, the Greek here is ek, with a genitive, and does not denote origin, but as often in John, nature. It doesn't mean that everything in the world comes from it. Rather, it means that evil behaviors are altogether worldly and as such are contrary to what God wills. Occupation with Christ delivers us from occupation of the world. Frankly, the more I'm occupied with the Lord Yeshua, the more I spend time with Him, the deeper I get in fellowship, the less I really care about what the world has to provide. Because you understand that it's temporary. You're not seeing into the spiritual realm. You're just looking at the physical realm. All right, verse 17. Whoa. <laughs> Stop that clock. <clears throat> and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, the world is passing away. The present tense indicates that the world is passing as an ongoing process. Now, we already saw this in 2.8. He's spoken of a similar way about the darkness is passing away. Now, I need you to pay attention here for a minute. We're going to... Most futurists and preterists take this as eschatological. All right, passing away, that's eschatology. All right, 
The future sees it as something yet future when the world ends as we know it and we're in the eternal state and worldliness is no more. We're all just sitting around harps, playing harps on white clouds and you know everything's just wonderful. Well, this verse presents a difficulty to those of us who are preterists, right? Because we say, hey, that stuff's already happened. We take this as eschatological. If we do that, then we have to believe that it happened in AD 70 at the return of Christ so if the world and its desires passed away at 8070, what does this passage mean to us? And if we don't have to worry about living or loving the world, then this has no meaning to us. I mean, it just, you know, guess maybe this is just to the first century saints, but let me say here, it seems to me that we still wrestle with not loving the world. Or let me say, at least I still wrestle with not loving the world. So I'm wondering, I think this still applies, okay? I think it still applies. And to me, it seems like if John had meant eschatology here, if that's what he's talking about, the changing of the ages, I think he would have used ion, I own here, instead of cosmos, the age. See, the age was in fact passing away very soon. From his time period, that age would pass away. The old covenant age was about to end. The new covenant was about to be consummated. But the world system, which attempts to meet all of mankind's needs apart from God and structures life in such a way as humans appear to be independent of God, has not passed away. I believe that today believers can still love the world and all it offers. Now the words passing away here from the Greek word Parago, which is used ten times in the New Testament, and seven of them just means to pass by. Like if I were to walk by you, I parago, I pass by you. All right. So here's how I take this. All right. Now listen, this is this is difficult. All right. And we've been bantering this back and forth. Uh, Bob Krushank and Dan Harden and I, you know, they these I wrote these guys and said, okay, help here. This is you know what does this say? And so we've been having some interesting conversations, but John, you know, I take this as John saying here, the world's passing away, don't get attached to it. It's temporary. Hang on to what's eternal, not to what's temporary. That fits then, that fits now. Okay? Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 31. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now here Paul doesn't say that the cosmos is passing away, but the schema of the cosmos is passing away. Schema, present form here, is the outward which changes from time to time and circumstance to circumstance. So the outer appearance of the world, he says, is passing away. He's not saying the world's passing away here. The schema of it is, the way it looks. In other words, the world would look differently under the new covenant than it did under the Old Covenant. Very differently. But the New Covenant world still deals with worldliness. Why? Because men are still in it. Okay? If you have men are in it, there's going to be a problem with worldliness. Now the transient nature of the world, I think, is clearly part of what he's saying here. It's, it's passing away. Don't put all your eggs in that basket. There's nothing there. It's temporary. Martin Luther wrote this. I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But the things I have placed in God's hands, I still possess. I think that's the idea here. 
So true this is. We all know the glory of this world is turning to dust, okay? The power of it soon passes. If you have this powerful kingdom, it's not going to last all that long. It passes away and something else comes along. You know? Soon everything's going to pass out of your hands and you're going to have nothing. Because nothing lasts very long. Everything is changing in this physical world. That's the characteristic of this world. You know, the ancient pharaohs were buried in the pyramids with all kinds of stuff. I mean, food, hunting tools, all kinds of neat stuff. Which they thought, this will come of use to us in the new world, you know? You know who that stuff was of use to? The grave robbers. <laughs> That's who it was of use to. The grave robbers said, this is neat stuff. I'm glad they stuck all this in here. The pharaohs couldn't take any of that stuff with them to the world beyond. It's temporary. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires. Now listen, if we take this eschatologically, the passage pretty much indicates that falling prey to the desires of the world is not possible anymore. It was only possible until the world passed away. The implication then is since the world passed away, the desires of the world are no longer a problem. How's that working out for you? Not too good for me. I'm still dealing with this somehow. Okay, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, in the fourth gospel, Yeshua speaks of his doing the will of God five times. And in each case, it relates in one way or another to his carrying out the mission which the Father sent him on. Well, does Lazarus use it differently here? I don't really think so. I think our mission is to love God and not love the world. We do this by avoiding the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. We do this by not getting caught up, you know, this pride of life, you know, getting caught up with what we have and being, you know, arrogant and boastful about it. If you love the world or the things of the world, I, here's one guarantee I can make you. You will lose every one of them at death. They're gone. I don't care what you've accumulated. You ever seen a U-Haul pulling a hearse? I mean, a U-Haul pulling a U- a hearse pulling a U-Haul? <laughs> yeah. You ever seen a U-Haul pulling a hearse? I never did either. <laughs> but you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? No. You don't take that stuff with you. I don't care how much you've accumulated. You know, all the worldly person lives for is gone as soon as his breath stops. Even if you've attained great stuff. Well, you can leave it to somebody else. Why? What's the point of that? But the idea is here, if you do the will of God, what you acquire is last forever. It never goes away. It's there forever. Jim Elliott, everyone know who Jim Elliott is? He died at the hands of the Aki Indians. He said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. And what you can't keep are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. To gain that which you cannot lose, and what you can't lose... It's fellowship with the Father. And that's what John says here. He used, you know, abiding in this verse. You abide, you know, abides forever. What you do spiritually lasts. What you do physically, you're just putting in time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Lord, this is a, a touchy sob subject because so many people have so many different ideas what worldly is. I pray you deal with our own hearts and help us to understand, Lord, that we are, our devotion, our desires are to be for you and the things that you have given. Spiritual things. We're to see into that spiritual world, Lord. Help us not to get caught up
and the system here that help us to realize we can't love the world and love you too. We have to make a choice, Lord, and I pray our love would be for you, and that would be clear and evident by the lives we live. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions, comments? Gary. That's not really a strong question, but John MacArthur's comments about not being Christians because they don't love God puts the salvation on on us, and it, it contradicts Romans eight thirty eight. Well, I, I would agree with that. See, here's what he would say. He would say, if you're a Christian, you will love. See, it comes out of being a Christian, but if you're not loving, then it just proves you never were a Christian. And again, that this is why the Bible Broadcasting Network took him off the air because they said he was damaging the church because, because he's causing so many Christians to doubt they're even Christians. I mean, if you're not sure you're a Christian, what's your motivation to live for God? But if you know you're a Christian and God says, you know, I just ask you to honor me by your life. It's got nothing to do with your salvation. It's more of a gratitude thing. Boy, thanks for my salvation. Let me honor you. Speaking to, to me, saying speaking to the disciples when he said, "If you don't love, if you don't love me." Is it what I got out of it is was he talking to them at that particular time? Not saying that they can't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Good. Good question, Anthony. Yeah, you know, he talks about Yeshua's questioning his disciples. He said, if you, you don't love me, because if you love me, you rejoice that I'm going to the Father. Well, yeah, because see, you can love the Lord today and not love him tomorrow, right? And then the next day, love him, you know, and that's the thing. We go in and out of that. And the idea is we want to maintain a relationship where we're demonstrating a love for God on a continual plane, not you know, keep faltering back and forth. See, the thing is, as a Christian, that's never going to change. You're a child of God. You're sure as heaven is you're already there. You're in Christ. You know, you're, you're in union with Christ. That is secure. That is done. But, you know, your love for the Lord and your fellowship with the Lord varies depending on what you put into it. You know, am I going to spend all my time enticed by the world? You know, you know, it, and again, this is a thing, you know, I've heard so many people say, I just don't have time to read my Bible. Well, then your priorities are really messed up, okay? Your priorities are just really messed up. And if you show me your schedule, I guarantee you I'll find you time because it takes 15 minutes a day to read through your Bible in a year. And if you can't find time to spend with God, what does that say about your life? If God doesn't matter? Most Christians will fight and die to say this Bible is inspired and yet never touch it, except carry it to church on Sunday. 